Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. This podcast is designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know, all in 20 minutes. I am your host, Hazel Baker, qualified London tour guide and CEO of londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Our walking tours are for those who love London and want to make the most of their time here, no matter whether it's for a weekend or a lifetime. We aim to deliver well-prepared and insightful walking tours with enthusiasm and professionalism. And with this podcast, we try and do the same. If you enjoy what we do, then please rate and review. You can become a patron for as little as £5, and that's where we share additional videos of the interviews with you, plus lots of other unique content. Get that cup of tea, put your feet up, and enjoy. Joining me in the studio today is Robert J. Lloyd, author of The Bloodless Boy. Hello, Rob. Hi there, Hazel. Nice to meet you. You've had a long affair with Robert Hook, haven't you? How did that start? Well, I I did an MA in the history of ideas um, back in 1995, wasn't it? So in in Newcastle. And I'd I'd stumbled across Robert Hooke's diary. I was actually researching John Aubrey at the time. I sort of stumbled into the 17th century and was was within, I knew I was interested in the 17th century, but but I hadn't chosen a, a thesis subject. And finally, Robert Hooke's diary was the, was the big, Game changer in the uh, University of Newcastle Library, and and it, it probably did keep me up all night re- reading it. The, uh, the the way that it's written, the the insight into his personal life as well as his scientific endeavours was was fascinating. I I then wrote the thesis on how he was really the engine of the, the world's society in, in the sort of mid to, to late sixteen seventies. Subscriptions were way down. It was it was. It, it, at a time when it was it was going to flood, it had no money coming in. No, no one was coming to to see the experiments that he he curated, put forward. There's one entry in his diary that said two people turned up, and and, and both of those grumbled. And so it really was at a, at a low ebb. And Hook Hook kept the the Royal Society going at that time. So, so my thesis was was about how he he did that. He had various other clubs. So so looking at the at the diary and. and which is history and uh, philosophical transactions. I, 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 I did my thesis on, on Hook as the, as the saviour of the Royal Society. I had all this research on, on a fascinating character. So in, in early drafts, he was very much the, the, the protagonist, the, the investigator, but, but it, that developed and I extended that to, 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 to be more his assistant. Harry Hunt, who uh, who was his friend throughout his life, was was well, actually one of the people who, who sorted his body out when when he died. They they were lifelong lifelong friends. We we know all, ever such a lot about Robert Hooke. We we know very little about Henry Hunt or Harry Hunt. So he's a, he's a great character to make up essentially. But their their relationship was was very close. We know Harry Hunt was an observator of the Royal Society. He had been. Hook's apprentice, and my, my book has him at the stage where, where he kind of sets out and, and becomes his own man. He's a little bit resentful of, uh, of just being seen as, uh, as Hook's assistant. So he, he kind of takes over the investigation and, and gets into all sorts of trouble for doing so. And you managed to add in some of Hook's major works as well, so considering the air pump. So what was Hook trying to achieve with the air pump? Well, he worked for... 
Robert Boyle as Robert Boyle's assistant before he was made curator of the of the Royal Society. Robert Boyle very gracefully gave gave him up to, to the Royal Society to be their curator. And so he he had the ingenuity, the, the expertise to actually be able to design and build an air pump which which had a receptacle that, that they could actually create vacuum inside. They they experimented with different materials. Hook himself was put into a tin box and the, the air was evacuated until he he got a terrible headache and his ear, eardrums were, were bursting so he banged on the inside of the box until Robert uh, Robert Boyle let him out but uh, this was a glass receiver there, there is the replica made of it I've, I've made it slightly slightly grander in, in the book and, and big enough to fit uh, a small child into but through through the use of vacuum in, in inside a, a glass receiver, they were able to conduct various experiments on, on combustion and, uh, and respiration, which, which Boyle wrote up. But, but Hook really was, was the person behind not only creating the apparatus, but, but essentially the, the, the experiments as well. So through that, Hook uh, was able to discover that there was a component in the air. He, he didn't name oxygen, but he, he discovered it, uh, and they did the various experiments with... I, I, I suppose you, you think of the... Um, right of Derby picture the, the bird inside the receiver they, they did various experiments on, on on respiration which involved birds and cats and dogs and so on also in, important for the plot of the of the novel was preservation they they, they preserved and um, dead dogs and vegetables and, and and saw how long these things lasted in inside a, in, inside a vacuum free of corruption and, and decay and how much do you think of Hook as a person we really know? Because he did have a bit of a reputation of being difficult in his later years. But if he's you know, the saviour of the Royal Society and he's really frustrated that no one's really buying into what he's doing, that must have been really difficult for him, wouldn't it? We know ever such a lot about Hook. His diary shows um, through his not only his Royal Society activity, but through all of the surveys that he, he did. So supposedly, after the fire of London, he conducted half of the surveys. You think something like 13,000 houses were destroyed after the fire of London. Robert Hooke is, is responsible for writing the certificates, if not physically surveying the, the, the various plots to allow people to build back on their, on their land as he oversaw the, the, the post-fire regulations, so that the widths of the streets and the size of the, the house fronts and the number of stories and then the building materials from which they, they were made. Hook oversaw all of this activity. He met, um, it might be 20, 30 people in, in a single day as, as he raced around London conducting his business activity. So he was city surveyor. He, he, he worked closely with, for example, Christopher Wren. They, they were lifelong friends and, and worked closely on things like the monuments to the Fire of London, also the, the Dome of St Paul's. So historians of architecture have great fun trying to disentangle who, who did what, but Hook is thought to be primarily res- responsible for the, the design and, and the maths of putting the dome of St Paul together, which is no mean achievement. And uh, t- together they designed the, the monument to the Fire of London as, as, as a signed instrument, as, as well as being a, a, a monument to a disaster. They, they carefully ensured that the steps were exactly 
six inches high so that they could do um, experiments at the different precisely measured altitudes within within the column so they i, I like to imagine them running up and down the, the spiral staircase dropping dropping heavy balls from from within but it was also a zenith telescope so um I, one thing i've never done I'd, i would love to do is actually visit the the basement of the of the monument where they set up the the, the base lens of the, their zenith telescope and and up through the flaming urn at the at the top there they had the top lens and and they used that to to establish the, the parallax as the as the earth orbited the sun to a star called gamma draconis and they they tried to establish the the, the distance to the to gamma draconis using using the monument as, a, as an enormous 200 tall telescope which is which is rather rather wonderful of course the um, the, the traffic as, as all the horses and carts went up and down fish street it meant that uh, it was it was never really the, uh, the the right place to have a telescope it, it made the the, the measurements uh, impossible to do at the, at the scale of accuracy that uh, that would have been required. So yes, he he had lifelong friendships. You you, you see the number of people who who came to his rooms at Gresham College. He, he had a friend called Theodore Hart, whom he played chess with. So the the, the sort of later biographers of of Isaac Newton and so on, who who wants to sort of put a, a baddie next to to Newton's goodie, I, I think they they caricatured Hook somewhat. That has been rectified in, in later years, and I think I think in the last few years of his life, when he was very ill and, and very solitary, and I think his reputation had, had been a little bit forgotten by the, the members of the, uh, the Royal Society then, I think he, he probably did become lonely and cantankerous. I'm in my mid-50s now, I'm, I'm, I'm going the same way, so I have a lot of sympathy with, with Hook there. In, in his earlier life, he was nothing but social, generous. You see that from the number of coffee houses he went to, the number of discussions that he, he records in, in his diary, uh, all the things that were going on. He, he was collegiate, open, friendly. Sadly, he, he had this fallout with, with Newton, which he had the temerity to criticise uh, Newton's uh, ideas on optics when he when he first uh, presented himself to the society and although they had a kind of stiffly polite correspondence I, I think the, the the relationship was damaged from then on. It's so good that you have the diary because otherwise we're we're learning about him from other people who have different reasons to to write about him and not always accurately or yeah. positively so the yeah. uh, I think the diary is uh, worth its weight in gold isn't it? Yeah, and the I mean the, the posthumous works were, were were put together. He had he had various schemes. He, he wrote his own autobiography, or or at least started one. And, and Richard Woolock Wallop uses that and, and puts that together. So we, we have bits of, of information. We we do have his voice in if if you read Micrographia, which is his sixteen sixty five masterwork. Hook's voice comes comes across really really straightforwardly and, and well and. And seems to, to my eyes, it seems so modern when you when you read him. If you if you modernise the spelling, the the intonation, the the, the 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 chatty, informative way, his his voice is is, is lovely, and I, I think you you kind of get get the spirit of the of the man simply from reading micrographia. If if, if my new book leads people to micrographia, I'd uh, I'd see that as a success. Well, and if anybody's wanting to know micrographia, 
Um, it's a publication which uh, shows stunning images of microbodies, which people had never seen before. That's right. And, and the plates in Micrographia, they must have cost an absolute fortune. Who was paying for it? The, the Royal Society put uh, put money up, and they, they thought that it would be a money spinner for them. Hook himself um, prepared the, the plates, you know, as, as well as being a scientist, as, as so many of these figures are in the 17th century. He, he was an artist as well. He, he was originally apprenticed to Sir Peter Lely. When, when his father died and he first moved from the Isle of Wight, he, he had, had his apprenticeship with Sir Peter Lely, but realised he could already do all of this stuff. So I so thought he may as well keep the money that his father had given him and, and spend it elsewhere. So he, he went off to um, well, Westminster School instead under, under, the, under Dr Busby. So straight away he mastered the, the, the elements of Euclid in six days and, and learned the organ. He, he was an extraordinary extraordinary character it was a new world you you had Leeuwenhoek and, and his microscopes but it was it was hook that really took people into things things like something I, I love from micrographia is the difference between the artificial and the natural and this is this is one of the themes of the of the book I think it's so fascinating it's such an exciting time isn't it because this is before science this is connecting to to everything. Now it's like careers advice. It's so what do you want to be? A scientist or an artist? Whereas at the time, everything was interconnecting and one would justify the other. Sometimes like when I'm doing research and especially like learning about Hook or the, the hunters, my brain is just going ping, ping, ping with what I already know and something's <laughs> fusing and making connections that I, I never saw before and and that was at that time when you're at the forefront of it all it must have been so exciting yeah I mean the, the I'm writing book three at, at the moment which is much more about Ren so so Ren is a, a sort of stars mm-hmm. and as well as being a mathematician as well as being an architect Wren prepared all the plates to illustrate Thomas Willis's studies of the brain. So um, Wren was an amazing artist as well, and you, you kind of forget you you, you forget this. So so interestingly, Hook Hook was a, worked with Thomas Willis as well. So that that sort of anatomy side of things that, that comes along in in the book. They were extraordinarily gifted in so many different fields that now would be utterly specialised. And they seem to dance from one to another in, in the course of a, a coffee shop evening. They can, they can discuss all of these things, all at the forefront of, of science as, as it was then. Quite, quite extraordinary individuals and, and seem to think nothing of it. They'll, they'll go from, from designing a, a, a pocket watch to um, designing a monument. They, they don't break into a sweat doing it, which is, which is quite, quite phenomenal. You mentioned about um, Royal Society thinking that the micrographia would be a money spinner. Were they right? It, it did make money. It, it carried on. The new editions were, were, were constantly uh, were constantly commissioned. The, the, the very intriguing thing about Hook's will, but also Harry Hunt. Hook made a, an absolute fortune from his surveying. Although he was always chasing money from the Royal Society because they, they never seemed to have paid him properly and his diary is full of moaning about trying to actually be, be paid the money he was promised. His salary is, as Gresham Professor and, and as curator of the society was absolutely dwarfed by the amounts of money he was uh, making as a, as a city surveyor. So when he died, he, he left something like £8,000 in, in cash and in a big iron trunk in, in his bedroom. 
and then he had loads of gold and silver plate and all sorts. And it's it's worth well over a million pounds today. Difficult to do a direct translation with with money, but and and it, it was just sitting in in his trunk. No no hint of impropriety, corruption. Just earned all of this this money and and but didn't spend it. Preferred not to. I think he was too busy to spend it, wasn't he? I think he probably was. Yeah. He had his rooms at Gresham, which he moved into when he was made curator or, or Gresham professor. It sort of came with the, with the two jobs he had. And he was there for 40 years and, and felt no need to to, to leave, or, or, although he, he was fed up with the Royal Society at various occasions and, and resolved to, to leave. He, he never did, and um, he, he stayed in, in that southeast corner of, of, of Gresham College, the, the Thomas Gresham's mansion that used to used to be there off uh, off Bishopsgate Street. He he didn't find the same things important that that most people do. You mentioned impropriety because living with his niece raised a few eyebrows. What do we know about her? Grace Hook was his brother John's daughter, so she came from Isle of Wight as as Hook did and, and stayed with him. They seem to have had a physical relationship. So under the laws of incest, then, it, that was actually a capital crime. She, she moved to Hook's quarters in, in Gresham from the age of about 14, 15. From 16, he records in, in his diary that he, he was having some kind of physical relationship with quite what went on. It doesn't detail. Obviously, this was kept secret it, it only appears in in hook's diary it wasn't suspected by anyone else as far as i know he tried to broker various marriages to uh, to, to very sort of in, important people the, the the mayor um of london at, at the time of the fire of london sir thomas bloodworth grace hook was was going to going to be married off to him but uh, but but seems to have turned turned him down and and, and got out of the, the marriage it's a strange relationship it was it was a very loving relationship. Hook had physical relationships with most of the women who worked for him. If you if you look at the diary, the doll doll lord Mary Robinson is an exception to, to, to that. Mary Robinson becomes a main character in so so he, he's got a shorthand for for describing his his orgasms in in diary, which was quite amusing when they when they turned up. He just used the, the sign of, of Pisces, but how he achieved. Pisces is is open to the the, the imagination. So these, he, I mean, one thing is he, he had a very hunched back. So so it must have been problematic, but put, put it that way. So so quite how how Pisces was was achieved, we'll, we'll never know. So Rob's book, The Bloodless Boy, is now available for purchase. You can do that on our website, londonguidedwalks.co.uk forward slash podcast and click on episode 70. And this is a really interesting book, especially the time that it's set. But this is a time when we're suffering from the effects of the Civil War. You've got the, the science advancements as well. Also, you have uh, the Great Fire of London and also they've suffered the plague. And somehow life must continue. Well, thanks very much, Rob. Thank you, Hazel. It's been an absolute pleasure and, and thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. You can also join us for a great fire of London Walk where you can hear stories of some of the people affected by this devastating event and how others took advantage of the situation. All bookable online via our website, londonguidedwalks.co.uk. That's all for now. See you next time. <laughs>